Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, good friends. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of the Bill Press Pod with an inside look at the wild Democratic primary of 2020. It's all wrapped up in a brand new book that'll delight political junkies like you and me. It's called Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaign to Defeat Donald Trump by The Atlantic's Edward Isaac Dover. Dever starts out with a very tough but accurate analysis, I believe, of what went wrong in 2016, including what players and what factors should get the blame for Hillary's loss to Donald Trump. Then he moves into the 2020 Democratic primary with great insights and some very funny stories about how all the major candidates got into the race, how they tried to outmaneuver each other to the top of the pack, and how, which almost nobody expected, Joe Biden ended up on top of the pile. I've read the book, I loved it, and I know you will too. Battle for the Soul is hot off the press. It just came out a week ago, and we were able to track down Edward Isaac Dover just two days after publication. Isaac Dever, so good to connect with you again, Isaac, and congratulations on the book, Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaign to Defeat Trump, hot off the press, and now hot off the Bill Press pod. How about it? It's great. Thanks for having me, Bill. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. So um, I want to ask you uh, about a lot about the book and about what you call the identity crisis that the Democratic Party faced following the surprise victory of Donald Trump uh, in 2016, all of which is outlined uh, in your book. Let's start out with, since you are a working reporter, with a little look at uh, some of the news of the day, uh, Isaac, if I can. Uh, we learned last week that the grand jury in New York uh, has been convened to look into criminal allegations against Donald Trump. Uh, what do you think this means for Donald Trump? And what do you think it means about the Republican uh, decision to stick with Donald Trump in 2022 and maybe 2024? Look, I, I, everybody who is talking about this grand jury situation and what might be part of it, what might not be, is guessing when it comes to the legal part of it. I, I think that what, what is definitely true is that it's not good news to have a grand jury in panel, <laughs> right? It's not like good for Trump. It might be nothing for Trump in the end if the grand jury doesn't uh, have charges that come out of it. Uh, but uh, it's it's not going to be something that turns out well for me, except if he turns that into they impaneled the grand jury and got nothing if that is indeed what happens. Uh, I think what you see with the Republican Party overall is this really difficult process that they're going through, trying to figure out what to do about Donald Trump. In some ways, it was really captured to me the best by Lindsey Graham, whose own uh, you know went from saying in 2015, "If we deserve, if we uh, have Trump as the Republican nominee, we'll lose and we'll deserve to," and was very anti-Trump, to then. Uh, becoming as close to Trump as he could get to then the hours after the riot saying on the Senate floor, uh, enough is enough, we need to move forward to then uh, the, the comment that uh, I'm building up to here, which is that he was talking about Trump and he said, look, I don't think that there's a future for the Republican Party without Trump. And what he's getting at is that there is it's a very difficult thing for Republicans here. They know that Trump is a weight on them in a lot of ways, um, that he turns off a lot of voters, that that's true even more so after the pandemic, after the riot. But he also turns on a lot of voters and a lot of voters who will only turn on for him. And you look at the results in 2016 and 2018, 2020, the one that the Republicans did the worst in was 2018 because he wasn't on the ballot. Mm -hmm. And that is now a big question. So 2022, whatever happens, he won't be on the ballot. And can the Republican Party 
figure out some way to thread this needle of not really being Trump not being there, but being for Trump, of not really, at least so far, having an agenda, it seems, other than saying that uh, Trump is great and uh, that the Democrats are terrible and socialists. Uh, like, if that's the whole argument, it might work, um, but it's certainly not the you know grand ideology that you've seen from uh, Republicans in, in years past. In years past, uh, a related issue uh, is what to do about the January six commission. Uh, you know, uh, as we know, originally everybody was for it. Everybody, Republican, Democrat, so we got to look into this and find out how this happened and how we were uh, these people would take over the Capitol, one of the most closely tightly guarded buildings in the world. Uh, and then McCarthy and McConnell came out against it. Uh, and again, looking at 2022, Republicans seems are split. Mitt Romney saying, we're going to look terrible if we don't let the truth come out. And McConnell saying, we're going to look terrible if we're still talking about January 6th. Are the Republicans playing this right? I mean, they're making it. McConnell's decision is pretty transparently, as is Kevin McCarthy, is a political one. They think it'll be worse for the midterms next year. Uh, I don't think that they're uh, they they're making an argument or would pretend to be making an argument that's about what's good for the country. Um, they, they haven't even, uh, yeah, I think there are a lot of people who would like to know more about what happened there, but uh, they're also looking at a situation where, look, would Democrats try to make as much hay out of what happened as possible? Yes, politically, of course they would. Uh, but there, there are things that we don't know about what happened that day. The biggest one is what Trump's role was, what Trump was sort of doing minute by minute there. And as other people have pointed out, and Liz Cheney has said would probably be a problem, is that Kevin McCarthy, who was on the phone a couple of times with Trump on the day of the riot, uh, could be subpoenaed. And he might mm -hmm. have an answer for what he was hearing out of the president, which uh, it seems like, based on what other accounts we have so far, was not uh, <laughs> Donald Trump uh, sitting there and thinking very seriously about what was the best thing for democracy and how to keep things in order. <laughs> right. So before you, in your book, before you get to the identity crisis Democrats went through post-Donald Trump's uh, election, you spend a lot of time in the years leading up to 2016 uh, and Donald Trump's election, uh, particularly on the Clinton campaign. One thing I noticed uh, from your book, which I remember from the campaign too, and post-campaign, uh, Isaac, is that the Hillary people and Hillary herself, they're quick to blame for her defeat. They're quick to blame James Comey. They're quick to blame the Russians. They're quick to blame Bernie. They're not so quick to blame Hillary herself, right? Yeah, and look, all of those things were factors, obviously. Uh, but there's a conversation that I recount in the book that um, I had with a Clinton aide. Uh, it was the Thursday before the election, so it was at four or five days. Uh, we were at a diner in Brooklyn, not far from headquarters. Right. And uh, the person said, "You know, we realized this was going to be a change election, but Hillary couldn't be the change candidate, so we decided to change the question." Um, and you know, I'm sure that that meeting where the person said that, people were like, "Oh, that sounds great," uh, but like, <laughs> it, it doesn't really make any sense. And one way or the other. Uh, it didn't work, if you may have noticed. She was yeah. not. Uh, and I, I think that there was, in a way that, may, it, at least to the extent of it, that we didn't, any of us realize, uh, a, a mismatch of Hillary Clinton with that moment where people were looking for something to be different. And she was the heir to two different presidencies, through her husband's presidency and through Barack Obama's presidency as uh, his secretary of state. Uh, she was also, it's always hard when one party has been in power for two terms to have another term for that party. Uh, it's just the way that American voters act. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and there are other things in there too. There's a lot of sexism that was true in the country. And look, all of that being the case, she still won the popular vote by 2.9 million, right? Right. But lost it in places and in ways that were really uh, not only kept her from being president, but were really problematic for the Democratic Party. Uh, one big takeaway that I have from that part of your book is that um, you indicate, or, or I think you even assert, that Barack Obama was as responsible for her loss as she was. I mean, you have a phrase in there, quote, 
Obama ushered in what followed him. Yeah. Um, well, that explain strong. that. That's, that's pretty pretty strong. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> I, I think you'll see what I, uh, as you know, what I trace in the book is that you look at Obama's political involvement, and this is a man who uh, was really not ever interested in party politics. When we go back before he's president, he runs against Bobby Rush in a House primary, a longtime incumbent, right, in Chicago, mm -hmm. loses. Um, he runs as kind of the uh, not establishment candidate, not favored candidate in the Senate race in 2004. He wins uh, that Senate race. Ultimately, there were a lot of things that happened in that primary. It's a whole book in itself, probably. Right. <laughs> Uh, and then he runs in 2008 for president. Of course, Hillary Clinton is the, the party choice. Right? And he runs against her and he wins. He doesn't think in that way. But he also, as the president, uh, is traditionally in charge of the party apparatus, right? And that was important uh, for Trump. Uh, when he picked Ronald Romney McDaniel, it's and Biden picking Jamie Harrison for that job. Uh, and, uh, and Obama... He just never really cared. His first DNC chair pick was Tim Kaine. Kaine was finishing up as governor for the first year of that. So he was just commuting a, a day or two a week into Washington to be DNC chair uh, while having a pretty important job as governor. Uh, and then after Kaine, he picks Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who he picked because he thought it would be good for his reelection campaign, because she's a woman, because she's from Florida, because she's Jewish, because she had a lot of relationship with donors. It was the best thing for his reelection campaign in his mind and the mind of his advisors, but it was not necessarily the best thing for the DNC. And by the way, Wasserman Schultz stayed DNC chair for a very long time and passed a point when uh, some Obama aides uh, were uh, looking to replace her. And Obama just, he couldn't really be brought to have the fight. Mm -hmm. you, and you point out the scorecard uh, under eight years of uh, Barack Obama. Uh, I don't know whether you have the numbers in front of you, but I do in front of me. Uh, 947 state legislative seats lost during his eight years, 63 House members, 11 senators, and 13 governors. Ouch, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the Democratic bench right there, right? There it is. Yeah. Um, and uh, not all of that is on him, right? There are a lot of factors that went into that. Some of it is that, uh, you know, they did so badly in the 2010 midterms. Again, there's usually a, a push against the incumbent uh, party, uh, the White House incumbent party uh, in the midterms. And so it, that happened, and it happened in a year that was the gerrymander year, the census year, right? Uh, and so it made even more losses in the House and in state legislatures. But it, it, it was not a good period for Democrats. And I think part of what happened when, uh, when Trump won, and I try to trace this in the book, is that it was devastating to Democrats in itself. It was a su shocker surprise to almost everyone, including, by the way, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, and Donald Trump. They were all surprised. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it led to a, re a reconsideration among Democrats to look at what had happened, to look at the wreckage of the party that was there that uh, people hadn't been really paying attention to. There was uh, a stagnation of the party. There was uh, a real... Uh, just uh, falling apart of the party uh, all over the country. And, you know, there's an interview that uh, I did with Joe Biden in his uh, office as vice president, the West Wing, a couple doors down from the, the Oval Office, a week before Trump's inauguration. And he uh, was saying then, I think the Democratic Party has lost touch with what it needed to be, with what it uh, traditionally has been. Uh, and he's going on about this. And I stopped him and I said, you know, this sounds like a stump speech. And he said, uh -huh. to me, he said to me, well, you know, no, it's not a stump speech. Well, well, maybe for someone else. but not for <laughs> me. Um, And of course, you know, what the book also traces, among many other things, is that evolution um, for Biden, not just in getting into the race, but how he thought about the race and how he came to think about being president and the presidency that's, that is presented to him. And, you know, it ends with it, this interview. Then it was Biden's first interview as president. Two weeks into his presidency in February, we spoke for the book. And, and you see a lot of that picked up and reflected. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to go back with Biden uh, again, to, as you relate in the book, to pre-Trump's, uh, to pre-2016, let's say 2015, 
was Biden seriously considering running against Hillary? So this is a in the primary. Um, so he was never prepared to run in the primary, never got a campaign together. He would written off that he was going to run for president. Uh, but his part of why that had happened is because he just felt like his moment had passed. And part of it was because he had started to transfer his dream of being president to his son, Bo. And then what happens is that Bo uh, develops this very terrible devastating brain cancer that starts killing him very quickly. And there's no, uh, I don't remember what the percentage chance for survival was, but it's mm -hmm. basically once you get it, that's it. Uh, and they tried everything they could to save him and prolong his life. And he died. He died uh, Memorial Day weekend in 2015. Uh, and, and when that happens, Biden goes through this period that's like, in part coping, Bill, like he's doing it to... He's talking about running for president so that he doesn't have to think about how horrible it is that he's lost his beloved son. Uh, and in part to carry on Bo's legacy uh, and do it for him. Uh, and in part to give his own life meaning, right? That he, because he's, remember, this is a man who lost his wife and infant daughter in 1972 in that car crash, that car crash that Bo and Hunter were in. Uh, the two Biden boys, they both survived. And then there's this super tight unit of the three of them. For a couple of years, Biden is a single parent. It's sort of strange to think about, right? As, uh, not yes. a common story, a single parent as a man in the 1970s, but that's what circumstances delivered to him. Uh, and then his life, you know, he meets Jill Biden, now Jill Biden, um, uh, and uh, they have a daughter together. And the then it hits him again with this grief and it's overwhelming to him. Uh, and so he like, sort of gets close to running, sort of doesn't. People are trying to talk him out of it, including Obama. Ultimately, he doesn't run. Uh, and I think it, he was not ready to run at that point. And he mm -hmm. acknowledged that eventually, that it just wasn't, he wasn't did, there for it. Did Obama talk him out of it or, or tell him not to run? Obama has a way, and I trace this with people, where he doesn't ever say, like, don't run. But he'll, like, I refer to it in one point in talking, to a conversation, in talking about a conversation he had with Pete Buttigieg uh, right before the New Hampshire primary, where, like, he's, in, in Obama's mind, he seems to think he's telling Buttigieg, like, that was great, but, like, you got to start getting to a landing spot here. <laughs> like, you won the Iowa caucuses, but come on, like, it's a little bit crazy. And Buttigieg is not did not hear that out of the conversation. And I think that in the Biden conversations, Biden maybe heard it a little bit more what Obama was trying to do, but Biden wasn't really clicking in and listening to it in 2015. Right. And I think that it, one of the things that happens is that um, Obama sends David Pluff, his advisor, to meet with, Obama, with, with Biden and say to him, like, lay out the case for why not to run for president, right? Uh, be really hard, all these things. And Pluff can see that Biden is not clicking in on it. And finally, Pluff says to him, remember, this is Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders are, are running and already running strong right. in the fall of 2015. And he says to him, Mr. Vice President, listen, you have had an amazing career. We all love you. Do you really want all of this to end in a hotel room in Des Moines coming in third to Bernie Sanders? Um, and that hits Biden and helps sort of crack him into the right state of mind to say, no, I'm not going to run. And you see at the beginning of this book, when I pick up his story from there, uh, he is still not ready to run for president then, even though he's like more ready each week that goes by as he gets over uh, the worst of the grief uh, about mm -hmm. his dying. Uh, and I think you see all through 2019 in the book how much trouble he was having, how few people were showing up to his events, how he was stumbling around saying things that weren't really making sense sometimes. Uh, he wasn't connecting with crowds. And that was concerning to everybody. Part of what the book traces also is that it was concerning to Barack Obama, who wondered whether Biden would be able to pull it out. Mm -hmm. um, so now the, uh, to the heart of the book, which is this period uh, between 2016 and 2020. And I want to go back to your conversation, uh, your interview with uh, Joe Biden uh, in, in, in his office right down the, right down the hall from the, uh, from the Oval Office, where he talked about the theme. He was talking about the theme. You said it sounded like a stump speech. And as I recall from the book, that's where you, he started using this phrase, 
the battle for the soul of the Democratic Party, right? He saw that post-Trump that the Democratic Party had to come to grips. What did he mean by that? Like what the party was all about? It's the direction not, of the party? The battle for the soul comes not just with Trump. What it comes from is that is after Charlottesville, which is the seminal moment uh -huh. of Biden, right? Where he decides, you know, he never liked Trump, obviously. And, you know, I don't think he voted for Trump in 2016. Uh, he thought his politics uh -huh. were terrible uh, and uh, didn't want him to be the president. Um, he didn't like him. Um, he said to me in the interview that I did with him at the beginning of February, uh, you know, I thought he had no socially re redeeming value as far as I could see is how he mm. put it. Uh, and... Uh, all of that is true. But when Charlottesville happens, he sees something deeper that is going on for the country and, uh, and, and a need to remove Donald Trump from office. And he starts saying to people, you know, at the beginning of 2017, he's like joking around, like, if I'm walking, I'm running. I'm not yeah. running. But by the end of 2017, what he's saying to people is, you know, if someone else could, if you can convince me someone else could win, then I won't run. But Trump needs to go. And if, if I can't be convinced that someone else can beat him, I'm going to run against him. Now, of course, Bill, you've spent a lot of time around politicians, right? That's a kind of self-serving argument, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> right? But I think what it turned out to be the case when you look at the election results is that you see there there is at least some uh, rationale after the fact to that argument, right? That uh, the way that that Biden won, where the votes were, how close it was in just enough states, four states flipped 77,000 votes, even with a 7 million vote lead in the popular vote, Trump would have won the Electoral College. You know, that kind of stuff, it's, it's hard. It's hard to make the argument that someone else would have had the same results. And I'll tell you, one of the people that I quote in the book is a, a friend of Kamala Harris's who I spoke to after the riot happened. And I said, what do you make of all this? And this person said to me, like, it, I, I really wanted her to win. Uh, the campaign was so hard. It was so devastating when it didn't work out. But I just um, I thank God, uh, basically, that that, uh, that she didn't win, that she wasn't the nominee, because if she had, I think she would have lost to Trump and he'd be reelected president. And then I would have had to throw myself off the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm. Mm. So during this time, Biden, as you say, if I'm if I'm walking, I'm running. Right. So uh, leading up, uh, looking at who might run in 2020. But now he knew there was going to be a big field of candidates. Uh, and this time around, and uh, people are starting to emerge. Um, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, particularly those three. Um, what were they doing this time to get ready? And, um, and kind of what was Obama's role in all of this? Well, look, Bill, obviously, you've spent a lot of time with Bernie Sanders, and you know that there was an adjustment period to hit for him to going from the, the guy who was presenting a lot of ideas to then like, it's getting serious. Like, how do you translate this into policy and legislation, right? Uh, and the big move for Sanders was in 2017, he says, okay, we're not gonna like just keep talking about Medicare for all, let's make a bill and let's look mm -hmm. at what it is. And they start working with other senators and some senators are interested and some are not. Uh, and uh, he is doing it in, sort of in two simultaneous tracks. One is because he believes that there should be Medicare for all and that there should be some way to get this to happen, despite the fact that realistically, I don't think it would ever get through the Senate, um, not without major, major changes in the membership of the Senate and maybe not even through the House either. Uh, so that's going on. But also his advisors see an opportunity in, in Medicare for all in that they assume Sanders is probably running for president again. And they think, look, if we can get all these people who will be wanting to prove their bona fides with the with the progressives to sign on to uh, to Medicare for all to do that, then if he's on a primary stage with them, he wins no matter what because he's the one who's the purest. They're all like getting trying to get closer to his way of doing it, uh, and so that's what they do. But then there's this dynamic with Warren, who uh, coming out of 2016 is actually uh, the much more the uh, favored candidate of the liberal intelligentsia, and the Sanders folks feel like they need her stamp of approval on Medicare for all 
for it to pick up and be more than just the thing that Bernie Sanders is talking about. And so they court her quite a bit. And there ends up being this meeting between Sanders and Warren that I describe in the book. Warren did not support Medicare for all. She doesn't think it's the right way to go. Uh, because, you know, it seems like in part uh, because of the same argument that holds Sherrod Brown back from uh, backing Medicare for all, that it's it's an idea that actually slows down getting healthcare coverage to people because you talk about an idea that's not going to happen rather than ideas that will. And mm-hmm. she also thinks that just the policy of Medicare for all is bad. But she goes in and she decides, she makes a political decision at that point. Uh, she's a politician too. And she knows, she can see basically the trap that Bernie Sanders is laying for her here, but she doesn't feel like she has a choice. So she signs on, I think in some ways, hoping, betting that maybe Sanders won't run in 2016 and or 2020 rather, and, and that'll save her uh, from this being quite as big of an issue. But also, as a trace in the book, the, the thing that changed all of it for Sanders is Kamala Harris signs on to Medicare for All. Number one, right? She's the first person to sign on. First, yeah. uh, She does that. Not The Sanders people are caught off guard by that. Uh, she does it because she is planning to run for president. <laughs> and because she wants to have that connection to progressives and is making a bet that Sanders won't be in the race uh, herself. And she does that. And then all of a sudden, everybody's like, well, okay, if Kamala Harris is on, okay, I got to be on. And then I was at the press conference. I'm not sure if you covered that. uh, But in 2017, in one of the Senate office buildings, when uh, when Medicare for all was uh, announced, and it was uh, so many senators were there. And including many of the people who ended up running for president, Cory Booker and Kirsten Gillibrand, right? Um, some of the ones mm-hmm. who weren't there, notably Amy Klobuchar and Michael Bennett, both of whom don't support Medicare for All uh, and, and never have. But it it did then work uh, in Sanders' favor, I think, to a point, right? Medicare for All became the defining issue of the primary campaign in a way that was mind-numbing to me at points because you'd have these primary debates where the first 35 minutes was – Candidates oh. going back and forth in ways that didn't make sense to anyone about a bill that everybody knew probably couldn't even get like get to the floor. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I remember that they spent so much time in the intricacies of this Medicare for all, right? And it was yeah. mind it was mind numbing, right? At the expense of other issues. And I will say, I don't know if they're right about this, but Elizabeth Warren's folks feel like. Uh, this was a, an error in a lot of ways. Of course, there's something self-serving to that too. But point out, th- their argument is that uh, her wealth tax idea, the two-cent tax that she's now uh, pushing in the Senate uh, as not a presidential candidate, would have had a much broader appeal, both within the Democratic Party and within the country overall, where they would say, like, it's not Medicare for all, socialized, it's rich people should be paying more money, and it's even not a lot of money. And they mm-hmm. think that would have been much more appealing politically, but that they never got to have that argument really because it just got all wrapped up in Medicare for all with every candidate trying to figure out how they were embracing it with one notable exception, essentially, uh, which was Joe Biden. So during all of this time, um, everybody is taking their turn going to the mountaintop (laughs) (laughs) Uh, to get get some advice, but really to try to get the endorsement of Barack Obama. Uh, Did he have a favorite? Uh, No, he didn't have a favorite exactly. He had people that he was interested in. He was interested in Deval Patrick. He was interested in Mitch Landrieu. Um, neither huh. of them ended up running. Deval Patrick got in much later, but yeah, um, his right. wife developed cancer, and so he didn't run on the timeline he was expecting to. Um, and then he got interested in Beto O'Rourke. What do these people have in common? They are like Obama sees himself as like outside the system, right? All that stuff we were talking about, uh, and outside of Washington, and uh, uh, had something to them that was lighting up uh, interest in a way that beyond the kind of political fare. Uh, and so Obama was into each one of them uh, along the way. He was he was asked, there's a scene in the book uh, in December 2017, Obama's on a plane with his, uh, with a couple of aides flying from Chicago. There's a holiday party for the Obama Foundation. Mm-hmm. And they're playing a game that is probably familiar to you and many Democrats. And I think many people who even who weren't Democrats I'm like, who do you think should be the president? <laughs> it's going to run. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the way Obama frames it, he says, okay, who do you want in your head? Who do you want in your heart? And who do you think can win? 
And they bounce around a couple of names, and his names are, uh, for head, Bill McRaven, the commander of the Navy SEAL raid that killed bin Laden. Uh, and that was, he wasn't the only person who felt that way uh, hmm. about McRaven. Uh, it was like intrigued and saw him as sort of like a Cincinnati figure who would be, you know, in this very partisan moment that Trump had presented, would be the post-partisan uh, guy who could lead through it. Uh, in his heart, Obama says Biden, of course, love Biden. Um, I'm not sure that he can do it, though, is what he basically started mm-hmm. to say. And so the question of who could win, he was like, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and and, and <laughs> importantly, right, he had a lot of doubts about Biden, but all those doubts were not just Barack Obama's, right? At the beginning of Biden's primary campaign, there were a lot of people who felt like Obama did saying, uh, maybe he's too old. Um, Obama said at one point, I'm rusty when I get out there. God knows how rusty Joe is. <laughs> um, and, and so he's expressing these doubts that were not only his, but they were definitely his uh, as well. Right. So our guest today, Edward Isaac Dover, his new book is Battle for the Soul, Battle for the Soul Inside the Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. If you're a political junkie like me and you wouldn't be listening if you were not, uh, it's a great read, a great book. You'll love it, as I have. Uh, and there's a link to buy the book on the uh, episode notes of this edition, this pod edition of the uh, Bill Press Pod. Um, we're going to take, Isaac, we're going to take a quick break. Okay. When we go back, you have some great nuggets in here that I really enjoyed. I want to talk about some of those uh, with you. Uh, take a quick break, then we'll be right back. In today's break, I wanted to tell you, Edward Isaac Dover in his book, not only talks about the candidates in 2020, he talks about the many grassroots organizations that sprung up to really energize the Democratic Party base. And one of the most effective is called Run for Something. It was founded on Inauguration Day, January 20, 2017. And their mission was to encourage young people to run for down-ballot office in order to build up the Democratic Party bench. For the first time out, they won over 40% of the candidates they supported. And in the last four years, they have recruited over 65,000 young people, again, to run for down-ballot office. They do a great job. They're still out there, still strong, run for something, and they really uh, need your help. So I encourage you, check out their website, runforsomething.net. You couldn't support a better organization. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. On today's podcast, uh, it's the Bill Press Pod. Our guest, Edward Isaac Dover. His first book is uh, a great one, Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaigns for to Defeat Donald Trump. Uh, Isaac, I want to remind you that uh, this is a podcast, so uh, we can use any colorful language on the podcast that you use in the book. Right. Um, this is not like uh, you know CNN or something where you have to uh, uh, you know <laughs> avoid 
some of those terms. Well, there's and a I say that, the language in the book, so it's good. Uh, exactly. I say that because I want to start off with, I, I call these the nuggets that I really enjoyed. One is, uh, you know, Barack Obama in public didn't say much about Donald Trump. Uh, as you point out, he had some colorful words for Donald Trump uh, in private. He didn't hold back, did he? Yeah, I think one of the things that this book uh, will uh, change in people's perception, I hope, because uh, it's true, is that Obama was often cast as being like detached and not really caring what was going on. And like a lot of what he was doing over the years was he wanted to make money and he had his Netflix deal and all mm -hmm. sorts of stuff like that. But uh, he also was watching the news and getting really upset by what was happening and really disgusted with Donald Trump. I don't think that anybody... Uh, thought that he voted for Donald Trump in 2016 or in 2020. But there are a lot of moments that I capture in here of him expressing himself. And, you know, as a reporter, you love it and you get these curses uh, because then you know that you're getting the raw thoughts of someone. And he would say sometimes people would push him and say, well, what do you think? And he'd say, I didn't think, I didn't think it would be this bad or um, he's a racist and he's a sexist and, you know, a pig. And then you know, one moment, for example, where the curses come out is that he's watching the reports of uh, Trump meeting with the Russian ambassador in the Oval Office by himself and talking to foreign leaders without aides on the phone, stuff that's really against protocol and Obama would know. Uh, and like a lot of people, uh, certainly I was as a reporter, I think anybody inquiring, looking at this would say like, what is going on? What is he doing? Now to Obama, his conclusion was he's a corrupt motherfucker, right? <laughs> and, uh, and that's an assessment that he carried through. Uh, and you see that roughness about, uh, his views of Donald Trump that, I, again, I think tracks with where a lot of Democrats were. Uh, in thinking about Trump. Ben Rhodes, one of Obama's closest aides, said to me that even in the right, uh, between, there, there's a period when Obama, right after Trump's election, was like, maybe this will be okay. And then it quickly changed by the time of the inauguration. Uh, and, and Rhodes said to me that it made Obama face the racism of the country and and be and get more upset by the racism of the country that he saw that he felt like Trump's uh uh win revealed and Rhodes mm -hmm. said to me he's sort of like Jackie Robinson he knew that the people were there heckling he heard them but he felt he could ignore them and he couldn't ignore them anymore and yeah. that's a big piece of what happens here with Obama and then it builds and builds and all the things go on and Trump accuses him of wiretapping Trump Tower and attacks Susan Rice and does all these things over the years. And uh, it, it gets more intense and more intense for Obama. And then by the end uh, he uh, uh, of the election, when he's campaigning last year, uh, if, you, <laughs> if you remember, he is just short of using words like motherfucker to talk about Trump. Oh, oh yeah. see it coming out of him. But right. it's because he's so angry and he's also so desperate. This guy has to go in Trump, in, in Obama's mind. Trump needs to not be the president anymore. And it's just hatred that uh, is spewing out of him in a way that, you know, is not not what uh, people often get with the, you know, cool demeanor of Barack Obama. Uh, I trust your reporting 100 percent. I still have a hard time uh, hearing Barack Obama say, corrupt motherfucker. Uh, but, uh, um, I, I didn't realize, again, till reading your book, um, you report that Nancy Pelosi was not even crazy about um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez coming out with the Green New Deal, that she actually tried to sabotage the uh, announcement of it? Well, remember what happens there is that um, Ed Markey, who uh, the senator uh, from uh, Massachusetts, who ended up having a primary challenge last year, he gets very close with Ocasio-Cortez and decides that he's going to be uh, to, to be part of the Green New Deal with her. And the night before uh, the press conference where that's supposed to be unveiled, Pelosi, who knew Markey for a long time when he was in the House, uh, calls him up and says... Uh, you know, don't do this. Don't don't be part of. Don't give this a platform. She didn't believe in the Green New Deal. She does. She thinks it's silly. It doesn't do anything. And I get into the book into in the book how that there's that's true, right? Like she 
uh, she's on to something because it's a resolution. It doesn't do anything. It's uh, it wasn't a bill. In fact, it was a resolution. Um, right. And, yeah. and and so, you know, it's like a messaging thing and to get people on the same page and say what they believe. But uh, the Green New Deal is being this litmus test for uh, the Democratic Party. It, I think it's fair to say is kind of dangerous because nobody really knows what they're signing on to. Right. Mm. And uh, Markey, in fact, ignored her advice, and he did appear with AOC for the launch of the uh, uh, of of the uh, Green New Deal. Yeah, uh, uh, and, and it ended up serving him well. Yeah, out there in uh, some form now. Um, Bernie Sanders, uh, who <laughs> when I first was working with Bernie and helping him and a little bit back in 2014, um, at that time, you know. Bernie was nobody. Nobody paid any attention to him, right? Then he jumps into 2016. He stuns everybody with how well he does. Uh, and you point out that so when he starts out uh, looking at 2020 and finally decides to run, uh, Bernie figures he's an important guy now and he deserves some perks, right, to go along with his new status. Yeah, he got... Uh, uh... A little bit used to the good life. <laughs> you know, Ber- Sanders very famously used to only sit in the in the middle seat in planes, uh, and then he got used to there. You know, in the campaign, there being a charter plane that left when he was ready to leave, um, and that uh, that had uh, comfortable uh, chairs for him. Uh, he had uh, what's called the comfort memo uh, for the senator. Uh, uh, that made very specific requirements about what he wanted in uh, his hotel room, the kind of snacks, the, the kind of blankets, the color of blankets, the temperature of the room. Um, and as you know, Bernie Sanders is a guy, he's a man of reasonably simple tastes most of the time, um, but he likes things to be a certain way. And uh, you know, there's a lot in the book about him uh, personally that uh, some people may like more than uh, – this part of it, if you're a Bernie Sanders fan, uh, but he there, there's one moment where he he's in California actually and at a hotel, and the room had to be uh, a certain temperature, uh, and uh, they they can't get it below the temperature, and they have a woman from the front desk comes up and she's trying to push the thermostat down, but Bill, as you know, in California, it's only. Yeah. Doesn't always work, it doesn't right? Go all the way down, um, and she can't get it uh, below this temperature. And Sanders is sitting on the edge of the bed, just sort of sitting there, uh, being his sort of grumpy self. Um, and uh, and uh, the the woman obviously knows who he is uh, and is nervous because of that too. And she says to him, "I'm sorry, I'm, I I can't uh, I can't get it lower, Senator." And she, her name was Chloe, uh, and uh, San, which I know because Sanders says to her, "Well, so what, Chloe? You don't want me to be able to sleep tonight?" Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, and and that that's part of who Sanders he went as, when you started talking to him. Uh, well, you knew him before he was starting to talk about his twenty fourteen. Of course, run. yeah. So he started talking about his twenty fourteen run and talking to him about it. He nobody had ever paid much attention to him. I know. And all of a sudden, he late in life becomes one of the most famous and most powerful politicians in the country, and that obviously does something to a person as a as a human being. Right. Uh, in fact, among all the people we've talked about, uh, Bernie. Ha- well, of course, second to Joe Biden, who's now president of the United States. Bernie has probably, would you say, em- emerged with the most influence and the most power and. Uh, in terms of defining where the Democratic Party is today, I I, I don't know the most, but certainly one of the, perhaps mm-hmm. the most. Um, he certainly up there, uh, and uh, and it's it's an it's an important role that he has in the party, um, and, uh, and, and, he, and if and, I can't, and yeah. he seems to have developed a relationship with Biden, you know, that they understand each other. Bernie well, knows this is an important thing. And I think yeah. that, that maybe gets to the heart of what you're saying. It maybe does make him the most important, right? Um, is that, look, Bernie Sanders wants to be taken seriously. He wants to be respected. He knew that Hillary Clinton didn't like him and didn't think much of him. And that did not work for him, right? Um, I remember, since we're um, podcast rules here, uh, reporting the way that I put it <laughs> in an article I wrote in 2016 is that his mode is kind of like, fuck me? No, fuck you. 
right? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and so when when he felt that from Clinton, it really did present that way of uh, of being with him. There is a concerted effort by Obama, but also by Joe Biden to bring him into the fold in 2020 and for 2020. And Biden is talking to him on the phone and um, listening to him and not just doing it perfunctory. I mean, Biden doesn't have any perfunctory phone calls, really. Um, But he's really taking seriously what Sanders is saying. One important element of how that played out politically, by the way, is not just that it, it helped keep a unification there uh, with the Sanders supporters and Sanders himself with Biden. But at a moment when Elizabeth Warren is turning around and wanting to get picked as the running mate uh, for Biden, uh, she probably would have benefited from Sanders saying to Biden at some point in those conversations, yeah, you know, Elizabeth would be really good. I think she Mm -hmm. could help with progressives. And Mm -hmm. Sanders was so pissed about what had happened in the election and that she stayed in. He blames her in part for, not that she ran, but that at a point when it was clear she wasn't going to be the nominee, that she stayed in the race through Super Tuesday, split those votes, and then didn't endorse him. And he just Mm -hmm. never brought her up. And you can imagine how Biden might have taken it much more seriously to think about Warren as the uniting force if Sanders had decided to say, hey, Joe, uh, Elizabeth would be really helpful here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been very generous with your time, Isaac. I want uh, just a couple of quick things back to the big picture uh, before we let you go. One is, so if the Democrats ex- had this identity crisis after they lost in 2016, are Republicans going through the same kind of identity crisis today, having lost the House and the Senate and the White House in 2020? I think they're going through a different identity crisis, uh, but it's definitely and then more, maybe more than identity. I think on both sides, I think it was an existential crisis for Democrats that I tried to trace in this book, and uh, and it, the Republican one is different. Um, one of the things when I was talking to Biden uh, in February uh, that he said was he started talking about how. I said, well, "What do you make of Republicans, and can you actually like work with them? Is that possible, given that they have?" You know, said that your election is legitimate. A lot of them, uh, illegitimate. A lot of them, and uh, he he started talking this story. You now it's Joe Biden, so everything is with a big story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and he goes back to 1972. Why is it important? That's when he's first running for Senate, and he's talking about then uh, how uh, he was at an event uh, where someone said to him, uh, you know, come out against the draft, and you know, and and was trying to pressure him and bring him in with where George McGovern was, right? And McGovern was running a much more uh, to the left campaign than Biden was in Delaware, um, in part because Delaware was traditionally a more conservative state. And, uh, and, And Biden says to me in this interview that there's something similar to that, and he knows the Republicans are in a tough spot, and, but he also says, look, McGovern wasn't vindictive. He, like, he was like, I didn't get anything. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like Everyone put out a statement about Joe Biden, candidate in Delaware who wouldn't do what he wanted on the set. You could see Trump doing that and have seen Trump doing that about a lot of Republicans, right? Uh, and so the Republicans, to go back to stuff we were talking about earlier, right? Uh, they have to decide and maybe they can't decide uh, what happens here. Uh, how much they embrace Trump as a party or, or distance him. Uh, and they don't get the full control of it because we see that Trump says he's going to start doing rallies again. I don't think that you will find almost any Republican outside of Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene <laughs> who want him to be doing rallies again. Like, honestly, even the ones who say, I don't think Kevin McCarthy wants to do rallies again or, or Rick Scott uh, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Or, or, or Tom Emmer, the head of the, the campaign committee for the House Republicans. Well, because you know what he's going to be talking about, right? He's yeah, not, himself yeah. and the election and all the things that uh, are less popular for Republicans than all the other things that they could be talking about. Uh, and finally, given the angst among Republicans, given the potential legal problems with Donald Trump and uh, and the fact that the last time he was on the ballot, they didn't do so well, lost the House, the Senate, and the White House, I still find Democrats today— uh, almost with a cloud of pessimism over them, assuming that they're going to lose the House and the Senate in 2022. Um, elected Democrats and Democratic you know, voters and activists that I talk to. Um, 
Do you sense that same cloud of defeatism? And if so, why? Because they're Democrats. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the right answer. Right. <laughs> um, look, I mean, there, there are also like there are historical trends that uh, are pointing away from uh, good times for Democrats. Uh, usually, the party that's in the White House loses yeah. midterms. Yeah. Uh, the exception to that in modern history is O2 with George Bush and the Republicans. Uh, but uh, there may be some parallels there too. That was a really crisis moment for the country after 9-11 and, and what happened there and the recovery from 9-11 uh, that worked in Bush's favor and Republicans' favor. Uh, there was also a lot of, obviously, uh, warmongering that was going on at that point. Uh, and uh, so that's the, the political side of it. Uh, there's gerrymandering is going to give Republicans a leg up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it just will uh, in a lot of uh, states and give them kind of a running start into uh, where things go. But I don't think that uh, we know for sure where things are going to be. I wouldn't, uh, I'm not a person to bet on politics one way or the other, uh, but I wouldn't bet large sums of money in either direction at this point. Uh, anybody who's tried to make predictions about politics the last couple of years has ended up being very, very wrong. Uh, Boy, so, haven't, haven't, <laughs> haven't we all learned that lesson, right? Yeah. yeah that, and that, that was a, one of the takeaways from 2016 for me was uh, don't go on a podcast or a TV show or a radio show and, uh, and say that this is what's going to happen. But like in the, the book is obviously a history of these four years in democratic politics, but it's also about where does that leave everybody now? Where is yep. it in the democratic party now? What is it? What is it going to be going forward into the future? And, and you know, it, Republicans can look at this book also and, and say, and like, this is what the party is and understand uh, what it is that they're facing. And, and uh, a, a, as I said, I think a different kind of uh, series of crises that they're going through, but there are some things that are parallel and related. Right. Uh, so anybody uh, active in, interested in uh, politics, uh, this is a book for you, Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaign to Defeat Trump, available, of course, in your number one in your local independent bookstore, also online with Amazon and Barnes & Noble and all the other sites. Uh, and you can find a link to purchase a book also on the episode notes of this edition of the Bill Press Pod. Edward Isaac Devere, thank you so much, my friend. Congratulations again and uh, lots of luck with the book. Thank you, Bill. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I hope everybody out there uh, does as well. There's there's a lot in there, a lot of a story that uh, surprised me, even though I was the reporter covering it uh, day to day myself. Great fun. Thanks again. Thank you. And that's it for today's podcast with Edward Isaac DeFair, his new book, Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaign to Defeat Donald Trump. Again, a link to purchase a book will be found on the episode notes for today's podcast. We thank you so much for joining us. Now, of course, we don't have to wear the mask if we've been vaccinated, but still, please be careful out there. Take care of yourself. Be strong, be safe, and come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.